Welcome to 2018. Happy New Year. It's so good to see you all here worshiping with us. Uh, I think we're all particularly delighted for the new year because it means that we have Ellis and Rachel and the Whites back with us. If you were here last Sunday, and I know you would never miss a Sunday, you already heard Pastor Ellis, but Rachel's over there. Wave to us, Rachel. We missed you, and we're glad you're back with us. It was a great thing, and I just want to thank all of you who were part of that. You prayed, and you, uh, you were generous, and you were working, and you were calling and sending lots of emails. Some of them were more helpful than others, but all of them taken together... All of them taken together accomplished the thing that we were begging that the Lord would do, which is to bring them back to us. So that's a great way to start our new year. I'm ready for January. I was ready for 2018, in part because December was a very expensive month for the tunes. Um, we are remodeling our uh, new home. We haven't even moved in. Well, that's not quite true. We moved in on December 31st. We slept on the floor of our new house so that we could say that we took residence in 2017. But we are still in the middle of a remodel. Anyone ever done that? I don't need to say anything more than about how much that costs. Uh, we wrote our, our, our Beyond These Walls gift before the end of the year, as so many of you also did. And next week, I hope you'll come back because we have some glorious news about that initiative. So that's a little teaser for you. And then perhaps the high point of our financial experiences in December was this. We wrote our last tuition check to Whitworth University for our son, Cooper. Woohoo! Can I get a, an Amen! <laughs> Somehow I think that this crowd is going to understand and appreciate that a little more than those folks in the next service coming. But wow, is that a great thing to write that final check, and uh, at least until grandkids come along, I suppose. Um, all of you who have taken this journey know how expensive uh, college can be, and it's just getting crazy, crazy, crazy expensive. It could have been a lot more expensive for us than it was, though, were it not for a woman named Anne. I'd love to tell you her story. Anne was married to Dave, with whom I served on the board of Whitworth University for many years, a very successful business guy, and he became a friend, and we labored together. And when he heard that Cooper wanted to go to Whitworth, he came to me and he said, I would love to help with Cooper's tuition. I thought, all right, I won't refuse that offer. Thank you very much. And so uh, I kind of tucked that away, but that was the end of it. Uh, Tragically, the year before, uh, in Cooper's senior year, Dave died unexpectedly. And of course, his promise, his offer had been, it was the last thing on my mind. We were grieving his loss and trying to get on with, with life. And so really, I put it out of my mind. Then the summer before Cooper was to head off to university, I got a note from his wife, Anne, And she said, I was going through my husband's things on his desk, and I found out that one of his wishes was to help out Cooper with his tuition at Whitworth. And so enclosed, you will find a check, which I hope will be a blessing and some help to you. And I opened the check, and it was for $1,000. That was remarkable, right? And for those of you who ever ever have put a kid through university, every thousand bucks makes a, a difference. So we were enormously grateful for that and would have thought that to be the end of the story. Except in December that that year, I got another note from Anne and another check for $1,000 before the next semester. The following summer, another note, another check. The following December, another note, another check. And so it continued one after another until this last December, we got the eighth note, the eighth check supporting Cooper in his last semester at Whitworth University. It's an astounding kindness. Here's what makes it even more astounding. I would not know Anne if I saw her. 
I don't know if I was ever introduced to her. I don't know her. I wouldn't know her. To, to, I wouldn't be able to pick her out. She doesn't know me. She doesn't know Cooper. She owed us nothing. And yet, out of her kindness, she made this extraordinarily generous investment in our son's life. What is the word that you would describe, use to describe this kind of generosity? I have a word for it, and it comes right out of the writings of Paul to the Romans that we've been studying. Grace. Isn't that an act of grace? It's just unmerited, undeserved, unexpected favor, loving kindness. This, this is just an act of grace. A point of parenting now. What would you, as a parent, what would the number one concern for you as a parent of a son who had just received an extraordinary gift like this? What is our number one job at that point? Yes! And it's not just a text thank you. It's not an email thank you. It is what? A written thank you note. And to help ensure that our son did that, we sent him a packet of thank you notes. We sent him stamps. I even kind of suggested some language that he might want to use. We are going to say thankful because the last thing you want him to do, right, is to presume upon that kindness, to ever take for granted this incredible grace and, and ever, re- ever reach a point where you would say, oh, another check, isn't that nice? And so every time it came, we continued to coach. And, I, and I've got to say, our boy's done a good job of that. But man, we were making sure of it. Here's the second coaching tip that we were uh, executing as parents of a, of a young adult. And it was this. We want to make sure that he makes the most of this unbelievable opportunity, right? We want Anne to feel like this investment that she has made in her life is going to bear fruit. That because of this investment in his life, he is going to be more the man that God has created to him to be. That he will accomplish great and greater things. So the second thing we want to encourage and hope for and work with our son is that he would make the most of this incredible, gracious opportunity. And so that is what we have been about. The story I share with you, because I think it speaks to the topic that Paul raises when we come to this magisterial chapter in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. I hope that there are some of you who are visiting with us. We were astounded last week to have 14 first-timers who came after Christmas Eve, so that's awesome. I hope that some of you are back here today. If so, you happen to step into the middle. We're calling it midterms, I think. You're stepping into the middle of a journey through what is really Paul's most majestic and also um, most challenging letter uh, to understand, and, that, and that's the letter to the Romans. I've described this as a diet of, ch- of, of, of fudge. It is so rich, so deep, um, so good, but man, it, it takes some work. And so we come today to uh, Romans chapter 6, which is wonderful. And I, I just need to take us back and explain why what I've said here uh, matters to, so much to me. Because in the chapter 5, which we finished up, uh, it is there that we are really introduced to this idea of, of grace. And, and before we get there, there were really two major themes that, God was working, uh, that Paul was working through in the book of Romans. So this is your summary statement of Romans. Here's, the, here's theme number one. Every human being... Every human being, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious practice or irreligious practice, every human being is sinful. Every human being falls short of God's glory. No no human being is capable of dealing with that sin issue in their own. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how religious you are, the the first memory verse I challenged us to was Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and of the glory of God. There is the summary statement of the first major theme in the book of Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is very bad news. 
Here's the really good news, though. God has taken care of the sin problem. That's the second astounding expression. In his act of grace, God has sent his own son, Jesus, a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for the sins that we could never pay. There is a a word, a, a theological word, I've been teaching you a bunch of them, that talks about this sin sacrifice on the cross that Jesus took for our, on our behalf. What is the word for that? It starts with a P. Propitiation. Good. Say it out loud. For those of you who are brand new here, you'll be able to use that word tomorrow, I'm sure. Propitiation. Uh, it's a sin sacrifice. And because of Christ's death on the cross in our behalf, because he took upon himself the sin that we could not get rid of, then we discover another wonderful doctrine, another wonderful word. God is able to look at us, and he sees not our sin, but the righteousness of his son. When we receive the gift of Jesus, it's as if he wraps us in his cloak of righteousness. And God the Father sees not us, not our sinfulness, but rather the righteousness of his son. And he pronounces us acquitted of that sinful nature which we know that we all possess. There's a word for that one. Do you remember? It starts with a J. Justification. Say that. Yet another word you'll be able to use at lunchtime tomorrow in the coffee shop before you head to work. So we have these wonderful ideas of the sin sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the pronouncement of God's acquittal of us, which is justification. Now, the, the question we must ask is, what is it that would prompt God to do such things? If that is in fact the case that we cannot earn God's favor, that we are broken in, in his sight, that we are disobedient at our core, what is it that would cause God to say, I'm going to take care of that for you? I got this covered. Here's my son. I'm going to pay the price. And if you believe in him, I pronounce you acquitted. You're my child. You're in my family. What would cause God to do such a thing? One word. What is it? Grace. Grace, grace is such a uniquely Christian word. Every other, there's no other religion in the world that understands grace. Every other religion is about earning God's favor. Christianity alone is the one that can raise up this incredible standard and say, here is the grace of God who demonstrates his love in this way, by acting out of his goodness, out of his kindness, when we have nothing, nothing to offer to the process. And we see this word grace begin to appear in chapter 5 in a really powerful way. It's been touched on, hinted at, but the previous chapter, he really touches on it. For instance, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there it appears, grace. This grace allows us access into the presence of God, access into the glory of God that ordinarily would strike us dead because we cannot even be in his glorious presence. And having opened the chapter with that word grace, that idea of grace, that becomes a drumbeat that that continues to resonate through chapter five. Six times Paul uses the word grace. Grace, 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 grace. Grace, grace, grace. It is the drumbeat of God's love coming out of chapter 5. This incredible, amazing grace. That's why the song's called that. It is amazing grace that God, out of his pure love for us, loves the unlovely, redeems the irredeemable for no other reason than that he chooses to do it. That is grace, amazing grace. But it raises an important question. A question that Paul alludes to in Romans 3, 8 uh, that was being raised by his critics and that he now feels compelled to respond to. And here is the question that Paul must deal with. 
If, when we are sinners, and we are that, he has proven that, God is able to show his grace, which is stronger than our sin, which is an amazing thing, then if we keep sinning, doesn't that mean that God can show more grace? You see the logic of it? If when I'm a sinner, God is able to show his grace, isn't it the case then that the more I sin, the more God's grace can be shown? And how can that be anything but good if God demonstrates his wonderful grace towards us? If grace is a good thing, if grace is offered to us when we sin, then the more, the merrier, right? Might as well live it up and let God exercise his grace. Believe it or not, there's a theological term for this idea. It's called antinomianism. Antinomian. There it is. Say the word. Antinomianism. It comes from the word anti, which means against, and nomos, law. In other words, if you have grace, then it doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what the rules are. You can live any way you want to. That is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Antinomians, that's what they believe. You don't need... Uh, to, to obey, you don't need to be different, you don't need to have any rules. The more sin that you get, the more grace that you be, get to experience. Paul has some very sharp things to say about that, and that brings us to our text this morning in chapter 6. It will be actually the first of the three chunks that he uses to, to speak against this, and, the, and each one starts with the same words, what then shall we say? So let's begin by reading God's word here together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's that question, right? Shall we keep on sinning so we get lots of grace? His response, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you following? All right. He presses in a little bit further in the second paragraph. For if we have been united with Jesus in in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Finally, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, Paul is responding to criticism from his enemies. They think he is an antinomian. They think that this, this, this doctrine of grace is sloppy and opens, it opens their, their lives up to just pure license and it gives them permission to sin. And Paul's response is very clear. By no means, that does not nearly do credit to it. Uh, it, we might better translate it, God forbid, or we might say, no stinking way. That is what Paul is saying. No stinking way. And he goes on to say, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Now, what does he mean by that? How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? Verse 2. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Think about that one for a moment. I told you we're moving into some deep territory. When you think about your baptism, if you remember it, 
or a baptism that you witness or might witness later today, or remember the baptism that you had as a child, what does it represent for you? Perhaps you think of baptism in terms of of the cleansing of sins, of the washing away of your iniquity. Perhaps you think of the baptism as the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's language like that in the New Testament. Perhaps you think of baptism as an initiation into God's covenant family, for we certainly believe that to be true as as well. So all of those things are true. Washing away of sins, uh, filling with the Holy Spirit, initiation into God's, uh, God's family, His covenant family. All of those things are true, but I'll bet that we don't often think of your baptism as your funeral. But that's what Paul says here. He wants us to imagine immersion, uh, baptism, as full immersion. How many of you come from a Baptist background saying, it's about time? (laughs) I know you would. I know you would. For... I just want to go on the record. When we built this sanctuary, I tried to convince the building committee to put a baptismal tank up here. I thought, how cool would that be? Presbyterians that dunk. I mean, that would be the best combination of life. I got shot down. How many would vote with me today if we were building the thing? I won't ask the others to raise your hand. You died in the wool Lutherans and Presbyterians. I'll just leave you to it. But when Paul imagined... Uh, baptism, he imagined someone was being immersed completely under. And he says, when you're going under the water, it is as if you are being under the soil and you are being buried. He's talking about our burial with Christ. That's the language he uses. I was in Egypt many years ago, back in 1991, and um, I had a chance to visit the pyramids of Giza. Anyone ever made it to the pyramids of Giza? Probably less of you are going to go now with the way things are going over there, but I was glad I was there. And while we were there, I visited what is called the Great Pyramid. You can actually climb up inside the Great Pyramid. Here's a picture of the, of the, uh, of the passageway. It is, I assure you, it is not for the claustrophobic. How many of you here are claustrophobic? You would not like climbing up into that pyramid because you have to crab your way up in that situation for really hundreds of feet until you finally make your way out into a big open antechamber. Uh, all of the treasures have been removed from it by tomb robbers long ago. The only thing remaining is a huge stone sarcophagus that has the, a body that has been carved, the shape of a body carved out of the sarcophagus. That was all that remained because they couldn't slide that thing back down the chamber, I guess. They couldn't steal that too. So that was all that was in there. Big room right in the middle of the pyramid and this big stone sarcophagus. It was kind of creepy. Guess what I did? Yes, I just had to do it. So I climbed inside and I just lay there. I had pictures of me laying where uh, some mummified pharaoh from thousands of years ago laid. I just could not pass up the opportunity. Paul says that when we were baptized, we weren't just being washed clean. We weren't just being initiated into God's covenant family. He says we were laid in the tomb with Jesus. And in verse 5, he uses the language of united with Jesus in his death. And later he says that our old self has been crucified. When Jesus was crucified, our old self was crucified so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We'll talk more about that next week. And if we were crucified with Christ, if we were buried with Christ, guess what happens on the third day with Christ? We are raised to new life. He says you are buried with Christ and you are also resurrected with Jesus. 
We are baptized. We share his death. We share his burial. And ultimately, we shall one day share his resurrection. Yesterday, we celebrated a man who's doing just that. That's what these 18 red balloons celebrate too. That's not just death and mourning. It's also celebration. For they have gone to experience finally and fully the resurrection of Jesus, which was promised here. We, we buried Jim Berry, who's the, the, the father-in-law of my assistant, Kathy Berry. A wonderful, godly man, a preacher who gave his life in the service of the Lord. And we celebrated the fact that this promise has been fulfilled in him. He breathed his last in this life. He opened his eyes to look upon the face of Jesus. He has been resurrected. And that is the promise that is available to every one of us who are in Christ. Buried with Christ. Raised one day in glory with Christ. This idea is known as union with Christ. Say that, please. This is a very deep concept, and it's a very important one, though, and I want to just take a stab at it. What that means is that Jesus didn't just die for us. Jesus wasn't just buried for us. Jesus wasn't just raised for us. By faith, we are baptized into Christ, and we participate in all of these things. One way to describe this concept of union in Christ is, are these words. What is true of Christ is true of me. What is true of Christ is true of me. I'll bet you never thought that. And I know it's kind of lofty, so let me help you think about it in, in, in this way. When I was younger, I skydived um, when I was a young man. Here's a picture of it. Me and my good buddy Kurt on the right-hand side. And uh, this was, among all of my uh, kind of sporting activities, this was my mother's favorite. The f- <laughs> going up 5,000 feet and just jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. In those days, they taught you on the ground what you were supposed to do. You jumped some, off of something about this big, and you reached in a certain way, and you counted out a certain way, and you learned to roll and all that stuff. Then you went up in the airplane. They hooked your parachute line to a static line on the airplane. You get to elevation, and you know, out you go. They don't do it this way anymore. Now they do this. They hook you up to another person, to an experienced jumper who has hundreds of jumps under his or her belt. It's called a tandem jump, a tandem jump. Where he goes, you go. What he experiences, you experience. How he falls, you fall. How he lands, you land. And hopefully how he rises up, you rise up. And this is, a, I think, a, it's an image of what union in Christ is, is all about. He doesn't just do these things for us. We participate in them. Baptism is our own funeral, the funeral of our own self. Our old self. And and when we come up from the water in Christ, we are a new person. His Holy Spirit now lives in us. And here is the part that I really want you to hear. For the first time, you have a fighting chance against sin. When you are in Christ, when you are united with Christ in your baptism, for the first time, you have a fighting chance against sin. Paul has repeatedly told us that we don't have any chance against sin. Sin is like the house. The house always wins. They always have the upper hand. But now with Christ, in Christ, we have the strength and the power to fight back. We have the spirit to fight back. Now sin doesn't have to have the final word. United with Christ, we can be victorious over sin. This is God's incredible grace And so to the question of, so are you going easy on sin by saying that grace covers it it all? To that question, Paul would say, why in the world would you want to stay in the grave? 
Why in the world would you want to continue to be enslaved to sin? You are hitched to Jesus who is the victor over sin and death. Why wouldn't you want to experience the fullness of his real resurrection life? Life that is actually victorious over the sin that has beset you. Why would you take for granted such an incredible gift? Why would you mock such incredible grace? Why would you hold in contempt the offer of forgiveness that was purchased for you at such a a deep and rich price? Why would you presume upon the grace by living a, a sloppy, sinful, ungrateful life after experiencing the richness of God's forgiveness? It brings me back to my opening story about Anne and her gift. How ungrateful would it be of my son or any such son to become complacent and to become presumptuous about her generosity? Or perhaps even worse, how graceless would it be if he were to take that degree and do nothing with it? Waste it, make no use of it. Any sane person would say, how can you mock such a rich gift? You've been given a chance to soar. Why in the world wouldn't you want to soar? That's what Paul would say. Live in sin, continue in sin so that grace may abound. How crazy is that? Why would you do it? When I was a kid, I lived on a farm. One of our uh, animals died. I think it was a cat. We had lots of cats, and they they died, a lot of them. We had big dogs. And, um, And so we buried this cat. Months later, I got curious. You know the expression, curiosity killed the cat? In this case, it dug the cat back up. I just wanted to see what death looked like. I wa- so I kind of I dug him back up and took a, took a peek. And uh, I know it's kind of sick, but I better... How many... Come on, guys. How many of you... you know, maybe it's not such a large fraternity after all. I think, though, that there are many here who maybe would never do that horrible thing of digging up a dead cat who uh, have been baptized and although your old sinful self has been buried with Christ, you're not really content to leave it there. Although you've been united with Christ in his burial and his resurrection, there's a part of you that wants to continue to dabble in death. You kind of want to dig into it. You want to fiddle with it. You want to crawl back into the tomb you're kind of drawn to lie down in the sarcophagus again. And why would you want to do that, Paul says? It is ugly and stinky and yucky and wormy. And you remember how awful it made you feel before God redeemed you? For those of us who came to Christ when we were adults, there's a reason that we came to Christ because we didn't like the life we were living. We didn't like the sense of shame, the sense of guilt, the sense of purposelessness that we were enduring in that life. And we said, we need something more. And when we heard that Christ would offer that to us, we said, I'm in. I want that. I want that new life. You have been set free by Christ. You are free, in, and, it's, and Scripture says if you are in Christ, free in Christ, you are free indeed. Why would you return to bondage? And then Paul closes this section of the passage with these words. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider means reckon or remember or count yourself. In other words, he says use your head 
Before you go back to dabbling in death, think about this. Remember that you don't have to sin anymore. Remember that for the first time, because the Spirit of Christ lives within you, you have victory over this. You can live as free as you have ever lived before. Do it, he would say. In a moment, we're going to renew our baptismal vows. It's going to be an opportunity for us to roll that stone back over some dead part of our life that we're still picking away at. This is a chance for you to look and say, you know, that's a part of my, I don't know why, but I continue to, to go back in and to, to play with it and, da, and, and dabble with it. This is a chance for you to roll the stone back over that and say, I'm done with it. Say, Jesus, I am with you. I'm united with you. I, don't, I want your resurrection. I want your life. I don't want to mock your gift anymore. I don't want to presume upon the wonder of the grace that you poured out upon my life. Help me to live in a new way that is free from sin. So this is the invitation for us this day. Not just that this would be a ritual where we come up and receive the baptismal waters anew on our foreheads, but rather there would be a chance for us to say, this is a part of my life that I keep dabbling in. I'm, I'm, I'm picking away at things that are dead. Why in the world would I do that? So Holy Spirit, one more time, I want to ask you, set me free. Let me live in the freedom that is mine in Christ.